This week, the comics guys explain Supergirl. Steve Tasker, Darren Watts. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about da, da, da. Supergirl. Yeah, of, of all the characters uh, out there who currently are on TV, most of them are pretty straightforward in their histories and relatively easy to understand. Supergirl has a very kind of complicated history in the comics, and we thought we'd run through a bit of that for you guys. Absolutely. Like you said, the Flash runs fast. Right, yeah. Green Arrow, these are all straightforward people. There's a there's probably a good uh, episode to be had with Black Lightning at some point, though. Yes. He's kind of a mess, too. <laughs> so, Supergirl, there was, starting in the late 40s, early 50s, a very popular trend in superhero comics at a time when the popularity of superheroes was kind of like starting to fall off to expand the appeal of superheroes, of individual superheroes, by creating a female version of the male one. And uh, publishers at the time felt that this was something that was likely to bring in more girl readers who were considered at the time to be a very kind of like key and important audience to be reached out to. And superheroes in particular were a genre that was kind of like popularly believed, at least at the time, to be basically for boys. For boys, say, 8 to 12, that's what they were aimed at. And so the idea of kind of like expanding that and bringing in girls to the line was obviously something that they very much wanted to do. And so a lot of characters had kind of like female versions created to kind of like expand that interest. You have Submariner gets uh, Namora, Batman gets Batwoman and the original Batgirl, et cetera, et cetera. And so obviously at some point with Superman being one of the most popular characters around, the idea came around to do this with Superman. Now, there's a bit of a problem with this, obviously, which is that Superman comes from an alien planet that blew up. And so where exactly is this other person going to come from? So first thing they do at DC is they decide to do a test run to see if people are going to be interested in a character like this. And so you have Superman number 123 comes out in the summer of 1958. And as usual for around this period, Jimmy Olsen has somehow acquired a magical Native American totem that grants wishes for him, just as you do in a 1950s comic. And so Jimmy sets her out uh, trying to use his wishes to help Superman, to make Superman's life easier, because Superman works so hard every day to help us and protect us from you know, plane crashes and whatever. It would be great if he had some help. And so... Jimmy wishes into existence a girl with superpowers, Supergirl, who looks basically a lot like the Supergirl that we're going to come to know, right? She's wearing the blue and red costume with the cape and the skirt and the blonde hair, et cetera, for this. But she's a figment of Jimmy's imagination. And so the two of them keep trying to help Superman, but they keep screwing up because she doesn't know anything about anything being brand new. 
And she keeps listening to Jimmy Olsen, who is terrible at this sort of thing. And so every time they try to help Superman, they, in fact, make things worse. And this is the comedy of the story, is these poor schmoes trying to help Superman, but just making everything more complicated. Towards the end of the story, Superman is saving a bridge that's about to collapse. And as he is in the process of doing that, some thugs who happen to have gotten their hands on some kryptonite use kryptonite on him. And so now Superman is dying from the kryptonite while he's trying to hold this bridge up and get everybody off of it safely. And it's a terrible you know, situation for him to be in. And Magical Supergirl comes flying in to save him, holds up the bridge just long enough to get everybody safely across and get Superman out of the way. But then she herself is fatally poisoned by the kryptonite. And knowing that she's going to die from kryptonite poisoning, Jimmy basically wishes her away so that she doesn't suffer anymore from this. Right? It's a demented story. It's some comedy. The comic is very popular. It gets a lot of fan response and that sort of thing. People are saying, boy, I wish there was a Supergirl character that we could, you know, like see every month. You guys should make one of those, which was totally what DC was looking for at the time. So eight months later, in uh, Action Comics number 252, Otto Binder, who was one of the primary writers of Captain Marvel, back in the day, years before, who had kind of like with the, with the cancellation of Captain Marvel and the resolution of the lawsuits, had come over to DC to do some writing for them. And so he creates Supergirl. Now, once again, like we said, the problem is, of course, Krypton is blown up. So Otter, Otto Binder kind of posits the existence. Turns out on Krypton, there was a city called Argo City that was in a part of Krypton that had very bad like environmental problems, right? Like they had like a, the climate was terrible and there was occasional poison gas or something. I don't even remember all the details for it. But the point was the city had put a dome over itself on planet Krypton to make it more habitable and pleasant to be there. And so when Krypton blows up, somehow this kind of like asteroid sized chunk of Krypton with this domed city on top of it blows off into space in one piece, completely intact. And so there's a whole city full of Kryptonians out there just kind of floating around in space that we had never heard of before. They, as it turns out, there is Jor-El's brother, Zor-El, lives in this city with his lovely wife, Allura. And they have a baby daughter named Kara. And they are totally know what happened to Jor-El and his kid. They know that this, you know, their, their baby had been rocketed off before the planet blew up. And so they have, are aware, they're like monitoring the adventures of Superboy on Earth. And they're like, well, this is great. We should all go to Earth. Like our entire city should go to Earth. We'll be great there. It'll be, it'll be fabulous. What they don't know is that like all of the pieces of Krypton that like were blown off, the soil, the Earth that they're on is slowly transforming into kryptonite, right? Like every other, you know, chunk of Krypton that blew up, you know, kind of like eventually changes into this glowing green rock that's going to kill Superman. It kills Kryptonians. So they become aware of the fact that like, oh my God, we're being poisoned by our own earth as it is changing radioactively into this substance. So they put a big lead shield between themselves and the layer of the earth that is turning into kryptonite to protect themselves from it. Unfortunately, Argo City is then caught in a meteor storm that destroys the shield. Also, there's a bad guy in there who is like up to some shenanigans who basically keeps them from stopping that from happening. And so everybody in Argo City is going to die. Rather than let this happen, Zorel 
of course, has a rocket like his brother did, puts baby Kara into it, and sends her off to finish the trip to Earth, even as the entire city is dying from kryptonite poisoning. So she arrives on Earth as a teenager. Her rocket crashes on Earth. And when she gets there, Superman is already a grown-up. Superman is already, you know, a full-grown adult. And when he finds her rocket and she comes out, you know, she is now 10 or 15 or so years younger than he is for this. And he, you know, she get he she tells him the story, you know, like how she came to be there. And he helps her create a secret identity as orphan Linda Lee while she learns to use her powers and that sort of thing and sends her to an orphanage to like, you know, grow up among earth people and like understand how earth people work. She gets adopted by the Danvers family and starts going to high school while, you know, secretly maintaining her identity of being Supergirl. Right. So that's her start. That's the, that's, that all happens in that first issue, in that first story, was all of that we shoot through all of that, you know, in like no time at all. And so now the Superman family, right? Like it's, you know, there's already been Superboy adventures and crypto adventures and all this other stuff. Now there's a teenage girl who's, uh, you know, kind of like part of the team. Mm-hmm. Does she get her own? Com- she doesn't get her own comic for a while. She actually stays in action and adventure as a feature, right? She never gets a full comic to herself for it. She kind of like shares it with a bunch of other assorted Superman characters, which is kind of a shame because at this time, like Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane both have their own comics. And you'd think Supergirl would be more interesting than either of those, but that's uh, not how it turned out. Over the course of this, though, over the course of her runs in action comics and adventure comics, she kind of like builds up. She's a, she's a popular character, but she's never big enough to really kind of like fully take off. She gets her own kind of supporting cast, her parents. She has friends in high school, et cetera, for this. She gets a cat named Streaky, who starts out as an ordinary Earth cat, but then plays with a ball of yarn that is infused with weird red kryptonite that gives the cat superpowers. So now Streaky the super cat is running around. And then she gets a horse. And this is a particularly weird episode in Supergirl's life. As she meets this flying horse, and it's, uh, you know, the first story that he appears in, there's no explanation. She just meets a horse that has superpowers and can fly and is really smart and everything. It's not until his second story that we actually get his backstory. And Comet's backstory is demented. He's a centaur in ancient Greece named Byron. And he wants to become a human. He wants to be uh, accepted in human society, not as a centaur. So Circe, literally the actual, you know, witch Circe, gives him a potion to turn him into a human. Except she screws up the potion, and instead of turning him fully into a human, turns him fully into a horse instead. <laughs> Oops, sorry, too bad. And she can't undo what the potion did. She just, for you know, story reasons, whatever, it just, I, sorry, you're, you're screwed, you're a horse now. <laughs> um, but instead, to make up for that, I will instead then give you superpowers. And so she gives him the ability to fly, and he's still as intelligent as a normal person as a horse, even though he can't actually talk. And he's immortal, and he has super strength and super speed, et cetera, et cetera. And so he winds up, in a completely unrelated later incident, winds up getting a mad wizard mad at him. And the mad wizard traps him on an asteroid in the constellation of Sagittarius. And that's where Supergirl meets him in the first place. 
So Supergirl's rocket passes by and it breaks the force field and he escapes. So he goes with her, you know, to have adventures because he's fallen in love with her as a horse guy. But of course he can't talk. So she doesn't know he's not a horse, that she's not a horse, that he's actually a guy who's in love with her. But hey, who doesn't want a superpowered flying horse? So she totally takes him in as her horse. And this guy decides, well, I love her. And this is the only way I get to be around her. So that's great. I will just totally accept being her horse. Which, you know, is kind of kinky for 1962. But okay, sure. It gets worse. (laughs) The magic spell, there is a magic spell that they encounter that turns him temporarily into a human being. But only when this certain comet is passing through the solar system that he's in, right? So he becomes a human periodically for a few days at a time, and then will turn back into being a horse again when the comet passes. He decides not to tell her that he is a human. He just kind of like wanders off and disappears to go be a human separately again and become, adopts, adopts the identity of Bronco Bill Starr, a rodeo trick rider. And so in the few days, every few months that he's human, he rides other horses as a human. As one does. As one does. Supergirl goes to the rodeo, sees this handsome, young, mysterious rodeo trick rider for it, and falls in love with him. <laughs> so now she's in love with the human version of him, who is keeping the secret from the fa- of the fact that he is actually her horse in disguise and is secretly in love with her. This is an incredibly complicated story that never really gets resolved. And eventually writers are just like, that just makes no sense whatsoever. And they just write him out of the stories and Comet stops being a thing. But there's an entire run in the early to mid 60s that is just the most demented collection of like, wow, that's super kinky for 1962. Okay, sure. Golden Age character. Yeah, was Silver Age at that point, really. So, right, sorry, sorry. Anyway, Supergirl continues on with her life. She continues, despite the fact she's one of the most powerful characters in DC Comics, she never really kind of gets a full, you know, chance to be on her own. She winds up joining the Legion of Superheroes the same way Superboy did. She gets invited to travel to the 30th century and join the team there. That's cool. She gets into a romance with Brainiac 5 that never really, once again, fully kind of pays off. But uh, they, you know, at least flirt with each other for a while. Then there's a story in which it turns out that Zorel and Allura didn't die along with the rest of Argo City. That at the last moment, Zorel realized he had a Phantom Zone projector in his lab, having already sent Kara, baby Kara, off into space. I don't know why he doesn't notice it until now, but he suddenly. <laughs> And says, okay, well, rather than die, let's go to the Phantom Zone for the rest of our lives. At least that way we will be together forever and we won't die this painful, horrible death from kryptonite radiation. And so he and his wife go into the Phantom Zone. And then eventually Supergirl finds out, you know, for complete, do in the Phantom Zone for some other reason, fighting a bad guy or something, she runs into her parents and discovers that they're alive. So they are rescued from the Phantom Zone. And instead, because there's no real place for them on Earth, they move to Superman's bottle city of Kandor, right? Like he's keeping an entire chunk of Krypton in that was shrunk by Brainiac and he's keeping it in a bottle in the Fortress of Solitude. So there's like tens of thousands of Kryptonian survivors living micro-sized in a bottle in his Fortress of Solitude. So she just has her parents shrunk down and move in there so they, they have like a nice, happy Krypton-like place to live and we don't have too many Kryptonians running around on the planet. That lasts for a few years. 
and then they get killed. Another writer comes along and is like, this is terrible. It's having Supergirl's real parents from Krypton is a dumb plot device lying around here for this. So they get killed by a supervillain and are removed again from the story. Around this time, the Superman movies are a hit, right? Like at this point, we're now in the late 70s, early 80s, and Christopher Reeve has been making these, you know, extremely successful Superman movies. And the Salkins, the producers for that, also have acquired the rights to do a Supergirl movie. And so in 1984, after the Superman movies have kind of, you know, like we've had four of them, the last one didn't really sell very well, they decide to make a Supergirl movie starring Helen Slater as uh, the, you know, the first time Supergirl is appearing on screen. It has uh, Faye Dunaway is in it and a bunch of other weird characters. Peter O'Toole is in it for about five minutes. And it's ridiculous. It's terrible. It doesn't understand the character. Helen Slater does her best with, you know, the, it's, it's not her fault, really. She just gets terrible lines and is in a terrible movie. And the movie is a bomb. It makes no money. Nobody goes to see it. And famously, for the amount of money that was spent on it, it's one of like the big losers, you know, in like 1980s movies, movie history, which is unfortunate, but that's what you get. So now we're in 1984 or so. The movie has just been, you know, a crashing bomb. She doesn't have her own comic. She doesn't have, you know, she's not appearing anywhere regularly. And efforts have been made to try to give her a solo spinoff comic. None of them have ever worked. And at this point is when Marv Wolfman and Len Wein have started writing The Crisis on Infinite Earths. So we'll probably do like an entire episode on the crisis at some point, but the basic problem, the basic premise is Marv Wolfman and Len Wein believe that the DC universe has become too complicated for new readers to figure out. Well, with such a simple character like Comet the Horse, how could they think that? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And, you know, so their, their biggest problem, the biggest thing they want to fix is all of the parallel Earths, right? In order to understand DC continuity at this point, not only do you have to know the main Earth that everybody is from, but you need to understand Earth 2, which is the one that has all the Golden Age characters on it. And then you have to understand Earth S, which is the one that has all the Captain Marvel, Shazam characters on it. And then there's Earth X, which got conquered by the Nazis, and that's got all the quality characters on it. And there's Earth 3, where all the good guys are bad guys and the bad guys are good guys, et cetera, et cetera. It's just this insanely complicated, you know, cosmology uh, mm -hmm. to keep track of. And so Marv Wolfman says, we're going to do a story. We're going to call it The Crisis on Infinite Earths, and we're going to get rid of all of these extra Earths. Everything is going to take place on one Earth. We're just going to have one history that starts you know, with the Golden Age characters and goes right up till today. And it will be a big year-long event in comics that will straighten all of this out. And DC says, that's great. We just saw that Marvel Comics just did a thing called Secret Wars, where they had a comic book adventure that took place, you know, over months and involved all of their characters teaming up. So don't just fix the alternate worlds thing we want to have like a big summer epic thing and we want to have it be important we want to have dramatic stuff we want you to kill off some important characters right like you pick some heroes who you think should die would be dramatic to die and people will care and it will make this more and more of an event and so they pick basically the two main characters that they pick to do this to are barry allen as the flash yep. which is not that big a deal when you think about it, because they've got a backup for him, right? Like the, you know, Wally West can become the new Flash, right? So it's not like Flash is going away. 
And the other character that they decide to kill off for it is Supergirl. Now, they went back and forth on this one for a while. Marv Wolfman has talked about this a lot because he very much liked Supergirl as a character and thought it would be very sad to kill her off. But on the other hand, after Crisis, DC had made plans to sign John Byrne to come write and, and you know, draw for them, to basically come over. He had been with Marvel for years at this point and had become basically Marvel's top writer slash artist. He had done, he had been on X-Men for a long time, then he'd gotten Fantastic Four and he made Fantastic Four a huge thing. So Byrne was one of the very small handful of creators at that point whose name on a book meant money, right? Like his stuff just was guaranteed to sell. And so DC offered him, at the time, an absolutely staggering amount of money, like literally like a million dollars a year, to come to DC and do whatever he wanted to do. Like he did carte blanche, pick your thing. And of course, Byrne's answer is, I, I want all of Superman, right? I will do Superman. I will do action comics. I will do all of this stuff. I want to recreate and revamp Superman after the crisis, right? Like this will be the post thing. And they were like, okay, fabulous, done. We love this. We want you on board. He says, okay, here are my list of unreasonable demands about <laughs> Superman. Number one, it sucks that there's like 1,000 other Kryptonians. Right. You know, over the course of the last 45 years in the story, we've had a zillion other Kryptonians show up, right? The fact that Superman is the last guy standing, the only survivor of this terrible tragedy has been dramatically undercut over and over again by all of these guys in the Phantom Zone, all of these Kryptonian villains that keep showing up, plus most notably Supergirl, right? The fact that Supergirl even exists undermines the tragedy of Superman's situation. Because, hey, he's got, a, he's got his cousin, he's got a dog, he's got a horse and a monkey and all kind of other stuff. Like, how lonely can he be, right? He's looking at all these other Kryptonians. So he says, I want to kill off all of them. Superman is the only survivor of Krypton. And which basically, you know, DC came back to Marv Wolfman and said, this is the deal. We're going to, you know, Supergirl is a, is a great choice to kill off. It would be a big dramatic event. And then we have her out of the way for Superman. Right. For, for, for Byrne to take over. So partway through Crisis, we have this incredibly tragic scene where Superman is getting his butt kicked by the Anti-Monitor. All of these other, you know, heroes are, are fighting this one guy who's just about to kill Superman and Supergirl comes flying in from off screen, rescues Superman, goes toe to toe with the main bad guy for several panels, and then he kills her. And you have this fabulous cover shot by George Perez of like all of the superheroes standing around while Superman is holding Supergirl's corpse in his arms and like tears are flowing down his face. And it's this terrible, big, dramatic sequence. Now, most of the people who got killed in the crisis, right? They're, they're remembered, they're mourned, right? Part of the difference with Supergirl is she got removed from history. She right. In new, new crisis, post-crisis continuity, there was never a Supergirl. So nobody even remembers her. Nobody like feels bad that she died after the crisis is over because she never existed, right? Everybody remembers and feels bad about Barry Allen. He didn't get wiped from history, but Supergirl gets wiped from history. And so starting in 1984, that Supergirl that we had known all of this time was dead, was gone as if she had never existed. And a lot of fans were very unhappy about this. So DC had a couple of things that they could do about this. 
one of them was to play up Power Girl. And we should talk about Power Girl for a bit. So back on Earth 2, back on the, the alternate Earth that was made up of mostly these, the Golden Age characters, the Justice Society characters and all that sort of thing, there had been a series in the 1970s where those characters were still up and running around. It was called All-Star Comics. And so the Justice Society like appeared in a run of those that was written primarily by Paul Levitz with art mostly by Wally Wood, who was one of the great Golden Age artists of, of his time for this, who was now about in his mid-50s at this point and wasn't really working up to his best capacity and was basically just, you know, earning a paycheck at that point. He was not kind of doing anything earth-shattering or groundbreaking, but he was still getting, you know, regular assignments. And in those stories, the, the Golden Age versions of these characters that you knew from Earth One are 30 years older. 40 years older at this point, right? Like there's a Superman of Earth 2 and he's got gray hair and he's kind of half retired. And there's, you know, like the the Batman of Earth 2, like Robin of Earth 2 has grown up and is a full grown man and Batman is old, et cetera. And so they have their own kind of like alternate timeline for these characters. Batman has retired and married Catwoman and had a daughter who becomes the Huntress originally. And Superman gets a version of Supergirl on Earth 2 that's basically the same story, basically the same idea of the character, right? She is from the Krypton of Earth 2, and she winds up on Earth in a rocket. In her case, like the rocket just took longer to get there, right? Like she left from the the Krypton that exploded. There was no Argo City in her story. And she just winds up arriving on Earth late and is adopted by the Superman of Earth 2 and becomes a superhero and becomes known as Power Girl. So... She famously, the, the, the thing most people remember about Power Girl is, shall we say, she is a bosomy character, considerably portrayed considerably physically differently from the Kara of Earth One for this. And the reason for that is that Wally Wood was not terribly impressed with the scripts for All-Star Comics that he was getting from Paul Levitz. He really didn't care at this point. He was an old man. He's a legend in the industry. And... He knew he was not getting the best gigs. He was not getting paid as well as some of the other artists, et cetera, for this. And so he kind of mailed in the art for several of these titles. And he fully admitted to doing so, you know, in interviews. And he basically said, for his own entertainment, he had drawn Power Girl when she was created as being pretty curvy. And one of the other artists kind of like commented on that saying, like, isn't she supposed to be Supergirl? Why does she have this, you know, the figure that she does? And he kind of like, that struck him funny. He hadn't really intended to do it that way. That's just how, you know, he drew women. And so every issue that came along, he decided he was going to make her breasts bigger (laughs) in each story until somebody told him to stop. Now, All-Star was not a particularly, you know, well thought of title, which is a shame because it was actually pretty well written. But nobody at DC was paying much attention. The editors at DC weren't paying much attention. And so nobody ever told Wally to stop making her breasts bigger. And so issue by issue, it became, she became almost preposterously top-heavy. And he kept waiting for somebody to tell him to knock it off, and nobody ever did. And so kind of legendarily from that point on, Power Girl has, you know, kind of like in canon, become the most bosomy character of the DC universe. Even when he had stopped writing, uh, or stopped drawing her for this, the character kind of, you know, carried on with this uh with this uh, impressive figure. And it's basically because Wally Wood was, 
you know, daring somebody to stop him from doing that. So did he anyway? Did he also have her? Yeah, you know, I haven't actually read those. So was she in the Supergirl costume or was she in what we think of as the Power Girl costume? She was in the Power Girl. Costume, okay, right, because she's a different character. Right. For this, so she wore like the white leotard with the you know with the, the window over her breasts right. and everything there for it. And then the, yeah. yeah, and she was part of like the new modern day Justice Society along with the Huntress and a couple of other characters who, for various other reasons, hadn't aged. Right, like Doctor Fate could still be in the new Justice Society because he just didn't get any older, etc. So you had this you know sub team that they were trying to produce of like the Justice Society guys who were not in their sixties at that point. Right, so they've got now they've. Post crisis, they have there's no more Earth Two, right? They have like folded all of the Earth Two characters into the new continuity of the New Earth, which means that Power Girl can't be from Krypton anymore, and so she needs a whole new origin. And nobody can really figure out quite what to do with her, right? Like nobody has a good idea for where she could have come from. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they write this kind of like terrible half-assed origin in which she's actually from Atlantis. She's a descendant of Arion. And her powers were all from like ancient magic. And it just turned out that Superman had, you know, rescued her anyway. There's, it's not, it, it's not good. Right. Which is unfortunate. And this is the start of many bad origin stories for power. Yeah. For power. She gets, she gets beaten up over and over again, which is a shame because she is a good character and she's generally a beloved character. Right. Like, I mean, she's a very popular character who keeps appearing in various teen books and that sort of thing. She's in the Birds of Prey and she's in... Which is why they didn't just wipe her like they could. Right. I mean, they could have just not brought her into the post-crisis exactly. DC, but she was popular enough. Right. She was, she was, by most accounts, more popular than Supergirl oh, okay. as a character. Right. So, so yeah. So, you know, she it's, it's basically not until Infinite Crisis brings back the existence of Earth 2 that she is kind of like gets her origin straightened out again. And they're willing to just say, you know what? She's the Supergirl from another dimension. Just accept it. Just deal with it. We're not even going to talk about it that much anymore going forward. She's, you know, she's the Supergirl from another dimension. She's in our dimension now. Cope, right? So, okay. So now we are in a world in the, you know, later 80s that has not had a Supergirl for several years. John Byrne is still writing Superman and everything. He gets three or four years into writing Superman stories. And he's like, you know what? Okay, now I'm ready to start having a couple of Kryptonians other than Superman show up. Superman's been all by himself for three or four years. You know, it's, I, I'm willing to do this. So he does a story where Crypto appears, right? And brings Crypto back. And that's really popular. And by this time, he's not, Byrne himself is not writing all of the Superman titles. One of them was done by Wolfman for a bit and then Roger Stern and then Peter David and Peter David is writing one of them. And so they create, Peter David and John Byrne create this character in which there is a, well, no, I'm sorry. Peter David's not in at this point for it. I got him in too early. This is straight up Byrne by himself first, the first version. We get this character who Lex Luthor from another dimension creates a synthetic Kryptonian being using some of Superman's DNA and stuff, right? And she has powers like Superman, but she can also like shapeshift to look however she wants because she's like a synthetic being. And she winds up on our planet in the hands of evil Lex Luthor, who she thinks is good guy Lex Luthor because she was raised by Lex Luthor for this. And he convinces her to take on a form like Superman. And so she, you know, creates a version of the costume and basically recreates the appearance of Supergirl 
And her backstory is now she works for Can- for Lex Luthor. She's in love with Lex Luthor, not knowing that he's the version from this world is evil. And she goes out and has adventures. She fights Superman briefly, and then they become partners. And her, you know, eventually she learns her whole story that she's not real, but it turns out to be okay with it. She gets separated from Lex Luthor. She gets adopted by the Kents and is kind of like installed in the universe as the Superman background character now. Peter David comes in at this point to take over that character and gets, she gets her own comic and he doesn't like any of this story. He's like, I love Supergirl. I don't want her to have any of this. She's not synthetic. Supergirl is just kind of gross. The whole Lex Luthor thing is kind of gross. And so he has her sacrifice herself to save the life of a human girl who just happens to be named Linda Danvers. And in order to save Linda Danvers from this terrible situation that she was in, they have to like physically merge into a single being. And this single being looks like Supergirl and has powers similar to them, but she's got a bunch of other powers too. And it will eventually turn out that she's actually, because of the heroic sacrifice that she made, it's basically turned her into an angel. And now she's got wings and she can teleport and she can set you on fire by looking at you. She's got a whole different set of powers and she's still got the the Supergirl look to her. But David keeps kind of pushing her away from the Superman mythos into creating this own separate character. Eventually they get separated again. Matrix becomes an angel herself. Linda becomes a separate character. More stuff goes running around. And eventually David gets the rights from DC to do a creator-owned series. And he can't have the Supergirl character anymore. And basically he takes the character that he's turned Matrix into, completely removes all of the connection to Superman and Lex Luthor in her backstory, and creates a brand new character out of her called Fallen Angel. And this series runs separately in DC up until the mid-2000s as a separate creator-owned thing from DC's you know, assorted company-owned characters. And so at that point, Fallen Angel has gotten so far away from being Supergirl that new readers don't even realize that's who she's supposed to be, right? This, is, this character has now, over 10 years, 12 years, become a completely different character. And now DC is once again without a Supergirl. So they decide, of course, we're going to you know, like try this again. And they introduce a character, a new Kara Supergirl, who is herself, once again, from Krypton. And they basically retell the entire story from the 50s in which she, you know, crashes on Earth. They give her the new costume, the red, white, and blue one for this, which is the one that she wears in the Justice League Unlimited animated series first. They decide they like that costume and carry it over to the comics. That's the one with the, you know, the cutoff t-shirt, leaves her belly showing there. And she winds up in the 31st century and joins the Legion and a bunch of other stuff happens goes to the Phantom Zone, part of the whole New Krypton storyline. And a version of Kara, this Kara, is the one that shows up on Smallville. This is, you know, she's got kind of like the same story. So the, it's a, a second appearance by Kara in other media besides comics is the version that uh, Laura Vandervoot played on the Smallville TV show is based on that version of Kara. Right. And then we finally get to New 52 in DC, which reboots the entire line completely and starts over with yet another Kara who comes to Earth and gets her origin story told, except this time she comes to Earth in the middle of like a meteor storm and 
she gets out of the you know out of her ship not believing superman when he tells her that krypton is destroyed and then immediately blames him somehow for doing it and she actually winds up as a superman bad guy for a little while it's manipulated by another evil kryptonian into almost destroying our entire planet she finally kind of catches on to what's going on that she's being manipulated she winds up killing him she gets kryptonite poisoning herself and decides to leave earth to die on her own in space she winds up getting kidnapped into yet another time travel saga. Superman and Superboy show up. She gets cured of the kryptonite poisoning, but her rage and her frustration get her turned into a Red Lantern. <laughs> so there's a storyline where she's actually got a Red Lantern power ring and a bunch of other stuff happens. But eventually she decides she's going to, she's fighting the world killers and she grabs the leader of the world killers and flies into the sun, holding both of them, assuming that they are both going to die from this. But instead, the solar energy heals her and removes the Red Lantern ring. And she is restored to the Supergirl that we all know and love. And this happened, I don't know, two or three years ago. And as far as I know, she is continuing to kick around the DC universe. And I, I have to admit that I have not read a new Supergirl story in probably two or three years. So I'm not really 100% sure what she's up to now. I gave up during that New 52 relaunch. Yeah, it was... It was not good. There were so many mixed bag in New 52. Yeah. But the good news is that right around the time that New 52 is starting up and everything is when the new TV series starts up. Right. And so Melissa Benoist, you know, becomes the newest, latest Supergirl to, to come along. And that version is not only a, you know, surprise hit, but, you know, has a tremendous number of spinoffs and a bunch of other stuff, like kind of solidifies the entire CW superhero lineup. Mm -hmm. And Melissa Benoist is just an absolute delight. The series is kind of alternately wacky, but is usually fun and worth your time. And she is tremendous fun. Yep. And now there is a whole new audience that basically only knows Supergirl from the TV show, mm -hmm. right? There's a great made, once again, it's the, in the, the modern era, what I call the celluloid, era, celluloid age of comics. Comic books are no longer the primary versions of these characters, right? Like Melissa Benoist is much more really Supergirl than any comic book version to the modern day audience. Absolutely. And the comics are just stories about Melissa Benoist now, nope. right? Like that has clearly taken over as this is the primary portrayal of Supergirl is the one on TV. The comics are just there to tell more stories about her. Yep, absolutely. Which I suppose is the best possible outcome when you consider all of the various terrible versions of her that have kicked around since 1985. Really, it's the best thing that could have happened to her. Yeah, as long as they don't give the CW one a horse boyfriend, I think it'll be right. Yeah, exactly. Well, we keep waiting for it. Ken Ken Height continues to insist that there needs to be a streaky the super cat on the show, though. <laughs> and that's a powerful argument. I can't really resist. I would really like it if she got a cat named Streaky. So I could see Crypto probably before Streaky, in the since they're doing a Superman. Show in the now. Superman, yeah. right? Yeah, crypto makes way more sense for Superboy than for Superman, though. Agreed, yeah, right? Like a boy should have a dog, like a grown up who just has a dog for this is like, okay, well, that's nice, yeah, but that's not, it doesn't have the same emotional connection, you know, definitely. All right, well, thank you all so much for joining us. That was super thanks cool. for tuning in, yeah. We will, we will take on some other new mystery or overcomplicated character or something of comics history sometime in the next couple of weeks. Thanks for showing up. Thank you. Bye-bye.